it's great to be back here. I was here before, uh, not that long ago, I don't think. I've had a couple of people say, you look really familiar. And I said, yeah, I've been here before I preached. But I had to explain to them that I looked different because I, I had facial hair back a few, whenever it was, a few weeks ago. And what I did was I, do you know how you wash your car and when you wash your car, it, it rains, right, invariably? Well, I went to the summer look thinking that it was going to, you know, change the weather. It, it didn't work. That was, so now I've got a very cold face. But um, Carol, when you were introducing me and, and listing off all the things that I, that I am responsible for, I thought, do, do I really do all that stuff? I've got to learn to say no, don't I? <laughs> and here I am t- doing the sermon and also the special music, apparently. So um, I do have a little song I'm going to do before I start speaking. You know the song, I Surrender All, and um, I really want this to be what this sermon is all about today. thing about that song, I had two versions of it. One was pitched higher, and I thought, I'll do the lower one, because it's morning. Wow, that was low. Last time I was standing up here in front of your congregation, I openly admitted to you that I am not an ordained minister. Giving sermons is something that I'm neither specifically trained to do or particularly comfortable doing. And in light of that, I find that singing a song and telling a little joke is 
a good mechanism for breaking the ice and calming my nerves and promoting an overall sense of goodwill. This morning, I'm throwing out the joke, okay? I'm going to cast caution to the wind, and, uh, well, not completely. You can see that my guitar is still over there. If I need to reach it, I, if I panic. But what I'm really saying is that this morning, I'm more interested in keeping your attention than I am in calming my nerves. And I know that I'm a rookie. I'm not a seasoned pastor or sermon giver, but I have given enough sermons to notice a certain trend which relates, by the way, to the male members of the congregation. Now, hear me out here on this. According to my admittedly limited observations, the younger men, let's say grade school to high school, have a particularly difficult time directing their focus on the sermon as opposed to having it zeroed in on cars, girls, and sports. Whereas our older male members seem to have a harder time keeping their heads from migrating toward either their chest or the ceiling, i.e. they begin to resemble one of those cute little bobblehead dolls, right? So now I'm not picking on men because I happen to be one. I'm just calling it like I see it. So I have strategically placed in this sermon a couple of creative interludes. They're going to catch you totally off guard as a way of meeting this challenge. Hopefully it'll be just at the right moment to pop your eyes open again. As much as we may hate to admit it, we are part of a society that is hopelessly infatuated with all that is bling and shamelessly addicted to trash-talking, chest-thumping, self-glorification. In fact, even those greatly loved social network giants Facebook and Twitter, in spite of their obvious beneficial utility, have become for many a much too convenient way to engage in what is really their favorite pastime, that of promoting self. Which brings us to the very sad conclusion that what this world worships the most is self. Now let's look at what God's word tells us about this drunk on self-affliction. Hang on. This would be a good time for me to say thank you to my wife. She helped me do this PowerPoint. It's really good, but she's coaching me. I need to wait, don't I? Didn't she do good? We are drunk on self. I'll just let you absorb that. Okay. Okay. Let's look at what God's Word tells us about this drunk-on-self-affliction. And we find this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 5. It gives an apt description of the human condition in the last days when it says, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. 
have nothing to do with them. Now, in stark contrast is the prescription for life as given us in Micah 6.8. No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What a contrast. It's hard not to marvel at how completely God's kingdom is at odds with this world. And the closer our relationship with Jesus becomes, the more glaring is the contrast. Now, you parents, has your child ever asked you to play the opposite game? You know, where yes means no, and no means yes, and I like this means, of course, I don't like this, and, well, you get the idea. Or have you ever had one of those Alice in Wonderland types of nightmares where everything is just backwards? Just like you fell down the looking glass and nothing fits? Compared with God's perfect kingdom, based on perfect love, motivated by perfect selflessness, regulated by perfect honesty, and conducted in perfect harmony, we currently live in an upside-down, nothing-fits, nightmarish, opposite-game kind of world. This is why the Bible is so full of what we would term paradoxes. Now, the dictionary defines paradox as a statement of proposition or proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. Now, please note that these biblical paradoxes are only paradoxes because of the flawed, upside-down thinking that we have inherited as citizens of this world. Do you, do you get that? And eventually, hopefully soon, we will be citizens of a much better world. And our hearts, minds, and thinking will have been properly aligned. So they will no longer be paradoxes. In the meantime, I find these paradoxical statements to be fascinating. And we're going to take a look at some of them this morning. And I say some because this is certainly not an exhaustive list. Now, what I've tried to do is to match these biblical paradoxes with the credos of the world that roughly parallel them. Let me show you what I mean. The poor are rich. He who dies, that's what the world is saying is that he who dies with the most toys wins, right? So that's, that's roughly what the world is saying as opposed to what God's, uh, God's truth is. Let's go to another one. The weak are strong. That's what the Bible teaches us. We're, we're strong when we are weak. But what does the world say? To the strongest goes the spoils, to the victor. And in fact, we have a fixation with superheroes. Spider-Man, Batman. I mean, I know them all. Does Jesus fit the profile of a superhero? Well, you know, that's, that's probably another, another sermon down the road. But, I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Let's go to another one. Surrender equals freedom. I mean, it's, it doesn't make sense to the world. You don't surrender. The world says, do what feels good. Do what you want to do. But you certainly don't surrender. There's more. Oh, I like that. The most expensive doesn't always equal the best. In fact, the best things are free. That's what God's word teaches us 
What does the world say? Image is everything, right? And another one is, it's better to give than to get, right? We teach that. We've been taught that. What does the world say? Just live and let live. Ah, it's all about me. I'm not my brother's keeper. We're told in the Bible that when we die, we actually live. We die to self, and we live that way. The world says, live for today. Don't even think about tomorrow. Just live for today. Do you, do you get how upside down we as Christians, what, we're, what God is teaching us is so upside down from what the world is, is trying to, to uh, teach us and get us to believe? Love that. Good job. And we, we lose to win. We lose what? We lose ourselves. We lose our, you know, uh, I'm going to do it myself, you know. And, and what is the world saying? Winning just, isn't just everything. It's the only thing. I think Vince Lombardi said that, right? The Bible t- teaches us to have faith in what we can't see. The world says, show me. I'm not going to believe anything I can't, that I can't see. If I can't see it, I won't believe it. So anyway, these are the, are the paradoxes. Now, I can see through that list at least four or five good sermons. But uh, I'm going to focus primarily on three of these biblical paradoxes, world credo pairings, because as the conference director of stewardship, my attention is just naturally drawn to certain stewardshipy kind of subjects but mostly because I'm already beginning to experience the savory smells of lunch. Or maybe I'm just imagining that. But anyway. Let me see what happens now. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. So these are the three we're going to focus on. There is perhaps no better example of an upside-down value system than that first one. The poor are rich. Here on our fallen world, Prosperity is lauded and poverty is decried. We clamor after the lifestyles of the rich and famous while shunning anything to do with the poor and downtrodden. Acquiring toys and then arrogantly flaunting these acquisitions has become the norm. It's what we're expected to do. In fact, we are conditioned by an onslaught of deceptive advertising into believing that we need all this stuff in order to be truly happy. Isn't that right? Now, I have a question for you. Are the rich, are the people that have all that stuff, are they really happy? Hmm. People that have are universally perceived as being more intelligent, more trustworthy, as well as morally superior to those who have not. So I think we probably can assume that they are happy when they really aren't. I think it's safe to say, however, that God is not nearly so impressed with material wealth. And by the way, he has a right to weigh in on this discussion because he is the creator. In Isaiah 66, 2, he says, My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. Now, more specifically, he tells us in 1 Samuel 2, 7, that the Lord makes some poor and some rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says this. This is what the Lord says. 
Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their toys. Well, their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me, and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things. Okay. It's time for an interlude. I warned you. This will be a musical interlude, okay? Anybody still awake? You're going to thank me for this later. Okay, this, the, the words of the song are completely on point to what we're talking about. There sits Simon, so foolishly wise, proudly he's tending his nets. Then Jesus calls, and the boats drift away, and all that he owns he forgets. More than the nets he abandoned that day He found that his pride was soon drifting away And it's hard to imagine The freedom we find From the things we leave behind Matthew was mindful of taking the tax Pressing the people to pay And hearing the call he responded in faith to follow the light and the way. And leaving the people so puzzled, he found the greed in his heart was no longer around. And it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. Every heart needs to be set free from possessions that hold it so tight Cause freedom's not found in the things that we own But the power to do what is right With Jesus our only possession The giving becomes our delight And we can imagine the freedom we find From the things we leave behind Worshipping goods we possess Jesus says lay all your treasures aside And love God above all the rest Cause when we say no to the things of the world We open our hearts to the love of the Lord And it's hard to imagine the freedom we find From the things we leave behind when we say no to the things of the world, we open our hearts to the love of the Lord, and it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind.
Okay. Everybody's awake. I can see that. That's good. My plan is working. Okay. Now, where were we? It isn't just that God wants the rich to quit boasting and the poor to be taken care of. I mean, he does, of course. And trust me, the Bible is full of such directives. But there's also plenty of biblical language that indicates that the poor are in so many ways though those who are really rich. James 2.5 has this to say, Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? The problem is that our concept of rich and poor is often so skewed, and we see value only within the constructs of this decaying world. Do you remember the story in Acts where Peter and John encountered the lame man begging at the temple gate? What did Peter tell the crippled man? It says it right up here on the screen. Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. You know, we have sort of imagined, at least I have, that Peter was apologizing that he couldn't place some hard, cold cash in this man's pocket. Instead, I rather believe that Peter was inwardly quite tickled that he is able to, about to give this man so much more than he has asked for. Right? Similarly, the Samaritan woman, you remember her, who was seeking water at the well, while in her very presence was he who is living water. And what about that image of the rich young ruler walking sadly away, unwilling to part with the acquired wealth of this world, while the pearl of great price is standing right in front of him, right in front of him, freely offering all the riches of his kingdom. Can you see from these stories how the world's view of what is valuable is so amazingly upside down? Do you see that? Not only is this world preoccupied with stuff, but it is also completely obsessed with just how cool or uncool that stuff is. Now, I almost titled this sermon, Images Everything, for we truly do live in an images everything kind of world. Have you noticed, for instance, just how much our society is consumed with brand names and labeling? It is widely believed that these labels are indicative of our style, our tastes, our status. And this is why you will probably never see someone sporting a t-shirt that has the word Target or Walmart loudly emblazoned across the front. No, that's just not cool enough, is it? But, but if it has just the right word or words, you'll happily pay two or three times the amount you should for that shirt, won't you? You see how, how we think? Sometimes it all seems so arbitrary and even random or or time-sensitive. In other words, what is cool and thus of great value one day is decidedly uncool and of no value the next. I'm happy to announce to you that God doesn't care about brand names and labels. I wonder if it doesn't even sadly amuse him that we have anointed diamonds, for instance, with such legendary value while we declare quartz to be relatively worthless. I mean, both were created by the same loving hand with the same limitless imagination and intricate detail. My friends, the best gift that he could ever give to us is free. 
ours simply for the accepting. Now, if you'll just excuse me one second, I've got to do some shopping. Uh, Excuse me, miss. Do you work here? Yes, sir, I do. Can I help you find something? Well, actually, I already know what I want. You see, your advertising here says that you're having a special on grace today. Is that correct? Oh, yes. But if you want to know the truth, we have a special on grace every day. Oh, that's great. That's exactly what I want. But, but you see, I couldn't find the price anywhere. Well, that's because grace is free. Free? Is there something wrong with it? I, I think maybe I better take a look at the grace that isn't free. Oh, no, sir. There's absolutely nothing wrong with any of it. We only carry the top of the line grace, the kind that saves you from the penalty of your sins and offers instead eternal life. It's the only kind we carry, and it's free. It's completely free. Hmm. Free. Well, you know, surely there are some hidden costs. I mean, I know, I know. There are probably some restrictions or conditions, right? I'll bet it's in the fine print. Let's just take a look at the fine print. Um, Sir, there is no fine print. There are no restrictions with grace. All of our grace is as unconditional as the love upon which it is based. Mm. But, okay, but doesn't the contract demand at least some performance on my part? I mean, nothing is free. It just goes against everything I've ever been taught. It doesn't seem right unless I do something to earn it. Okay. Sir, do you remember the story that Jesus told about the lost coin? Yeah. The coin did nothing. It just lay there being lost. Grace found that coin. And do you remember the story of the lost sheep? Mm -hmm. Did the sheep go looking for the shepherd? No. Grace, in the form of the shepherd, came looking for the lost sheep. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay, I get that. I get that. You know, here's what I'm really having a problem with. Our church has been talking a lot about stewardship lately and how we should be giving with a thankful heart. But for some reason, I'm only really grateful for something that I think has value. And to be perfectly honest, I have a hard time seeing value in something that's free. Look, look, I'm a businessman. And everything in the business world is based on quid pro quo. I just can't seem to overcome that standard. I want to be a good steward. I really do. I don't know what to do. I'm sorry, but all I can do is tell you that grace is free. But in terms of value, it is truly priceless. If you don't mind, sir, can I make a recommendation for you? I think in addition to grace, you need to add the Holy Spirit to your shopping list. Mm. The Spirit will change your heart. Then you will be able to break free from the earthly value system that is plaguing you. You know, I think you're right. Listen, I want to thank you so much for your help and for your recommendation. Hey, does your store carry the spirit? We sure do. Let me show you where it is. If you'll just come with me. But I do need to warn you, the spirit is... uh, Oh, don't tell me. Free? To all who ask. If you're like me, you have often been taught that giving is better than getting. And Acts 20.35 makes it official when it says, 
you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. However, the sinful nature that we have unfortunately inherited from our first parents has infected us from birth with a cancerous, me-first selfishness, which if left unsurrendered to God's transforming power, will dominate all of our decisions and all of our relationships. Very early in earth's history, we hear for the first time, but sadly not the last time, that shameless, it's all about me, live and let live sentiment, I am not my brother's keeper. But we shouldn't just blame this pervasive selfishness on our sinful nature for which the argument could be made we have no choice. Ultimately, it derives from a godless perspective as we, the created, fail to recognize him, the creator. King David was a man after God's own heart, right? Not because he was without sin, but because he got it. Listen to his words in 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 14. Then David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord. This is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion people are made great and given strength. Oh, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. And this is the part that shows that David gets it. Listen to this. But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have comes from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. And for those of us that still wrestle with the whole quid pro quo thing, like our friend in the little skit, God promises us an ample return on our giving. So he's going to give you quid pro quo. Listen, Luke 6.38 says, Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. There's your quid pro quo if you want it. And if you need a more specific promise than that, listen to what the wisest and one of the wealthiest men in the world says in Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. If you still need convincing that it is, in fact, better to give than to get, I ask you to broaden your concept of giving to include more than just tithes, offerings, and various other charitable monetary contributions. 1 Peter 5.7 counsels us to give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. It is clearly better to give those stress, stress issues to our loving Father, than to stubbornly hold on to them at the peril of our health, happiness, and sanity. So it is better to give, isn't it? Give those cares to God. There is lastly one more form of giving which is guaranteed to bring us immeasurable benefit. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, 
For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In Psalms alone, we are counseled at least 21 specific times, according to Strong's exhaustive concordance, and I went through this and I was exhausted, to give thanks to God. 21 specific times, just in Psalms. Give thanks to God. It is better to give than to receive. Well, I hope the men, young and older, have survived this sermon. I want to leave you with these words from Job 34, 19 through 21. He doesn't care how great a person may be. He pays no more attention to the rich than to the poor. He made them all. In a moment they die. In the middle of the night they pass away. The mighty are removed without a human hand. For God watches how people live. He sees everything they do. Lord, I just pray once more that you will help us to have our eyes clearly on you. To turn away from this world and its attractiveness, which really isn't attractive. Things that are cool that really aren't cool. Things that seem so alive and exciting, which are really not. And just going to pass away with the rest of this world. Lord, we we need your help to do that. I just pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to look to your promises and look to heaven and look to the future and not to this world and all of its excitement and allure. I pray for a blessing for every member in this church today on this Sabbath day. Help us to draw close to you, I pray in your name. Amen.